Okay, Acts 27, we, last week, I asked you to take a seat in the court in Caesarea and listen as Paul gave his defense before Agrippa. This week, I'm going to ask you to take a, your place on the ship that's going to Italy, sailing for Italy. Paul has appealed to Caesar, and that's where he's going to go, is Rome. He's going to go on a very long voyage. So take your seat on the ship, come aboard the ship, and take the sense of what's happening. As Paul takes this trip, this passage is really like no other in the Bible. I don't know that any rivals this particular chapter. Maybe some of those in Exodus, when they, the children were coming out of Egypt, Maybe some of those would parallel this in some ways, but uh, this kind of stands on its own as the particular type narrative that this is, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. You want to go ahead and get familiar with the map here. Uh, On the far right-hand corner, you'll see uh, Caesarea. That's our beginning place. He's going to go up on the seacoast of Cilicia, Lycia over to Myra, and that's the first section in chapter 27. Then we'll go over to Crete, and then the last leg of the journey will be from there over to uh, Malta and then Rome itself. So we'll pop this up a few times off and on through the, through the study this morning. Acts 27, verse 1, when it was determined that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners to a certain centurion named Julius of the Augustan band. Now, as we look at the voyage to Rome, just a little quick introduction here, the people on the ship, we have Julius as mentioned, the centurion. He's going to be in charge of the ship, as we'll see later on. Uh, When it comes time to determine, do we go this way or do this or that? It's up to him to determine that. So he's in charge of the ship in many respects. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus are the three men that we are very interested in. In fact, I find it very interesting that we don't see a lot about Aristarchus, but when we do see him, he's a very uh, supportive role to Paul. Uh, In fact, in Colossians 4 verse 10, I think it is, Aristarchus is in prison. He's a fellow prisoner with Paul. There's 276 people on board. It's quite a large ship. Some of these ships are said to have been about 150 feet long, these grain ships. Uh, There's other prisoners there. Paul's not the only one. And notice, if you will, take notice of the relationship between Julius the centurion and Paul as we go on this voyage. The ship travels, well, there's three ships they will travel an approximate 2,100 miles total by sea. That's a long way. That's like two-thirds of the United States. We take it from coast to coast. That's about two-thirds of the United States, just on water, very treacherous water. I will add several months, and then this is late in the year when travel is often very difficult, which we will see. Acts 27, verse 2, we continue They embarked. In a ship of Adramidium, which was about to set sail, about to sail into places on the coast of Asia, we put to sea Aristarchus of Macedonia, of Thessalonica being with us, and the next day we touched at Sidon, 
And Julius treated Paul kindly. Notice the, uh, the relationship there we see beginning between Julius and Paul. He already is treating Paul very kindly, allowing him liberty, treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go unto his friends and refresh himself. Then from there we put uh, out to sea. We sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And already in verse 4 we're beginning to see this idea that the weather is playing a significant role in what happens here. Already in verse 4, the winds are contrary to us. So they continue on, verse 5, when we had sailed across the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there in verse 6, they would change ships and get on another ship that uh, is a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. Verse 7, we had sailed slowly many days and were come with difficulty over against Snidus, the wind not further suffering us. We sailed under the lee of Crete over against Salmon. And with difficulty coasting along it, we came into a certain place called Fair Havens, nigh unto Lycia. So let's look at our map once again here. We've gone from Caesarea up to the coast coastline in Cilicia over to Myra. You'll see as we go uh, further on, and then when it mentions the difficulty they had sailing there, I take that to be perhaps where you see this word roads up against the, the word snidus, and I'm not going to proclaim that these are uh, actual, the best pronunciations that I give you here. Then they're going to go down below Crete, and you'll see in the center of Crete the area of Fair Havens. Now, this is kind of a stopping off point here, and it begins to be a critical, very critical time for the journey. What do we do? We've already had problems. There seem to be more problems, and some discuss whether this is really a good place for us to be or not, or do we continue on? Because you can see from the middle of Crete all the way to Rome is going to be quite a journey. Do we take off? and go, or do we stay here and spend the winter here? Now let's go back here just a little bit to the outlines. Verse 1 through 8, we've gone from Caesarea to Fair Havens. Fair Havens is in the middle of Crete, and then they're going to bounce along, as it were, uh, perhaps along the southern part of this island of Crete. Island, the island of Crete's a, a long island, a very skinny and long island, so they're bouncing along this for uh, the reason of the weather being contrary to them. Now verse 9, back to our text. Verse 9, when much time was spent and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was now already gone by, Paul admonished them. The fast uh, apparently referring to the atonement day fast in Leviticus 16, verse 29. The day of atonement was often referred to as the fast as a synonym of that time. So this is late in the year. It would be our middle of our October, perhaps. He said unto them, Sirs, I perceive, Paul is speaking here in verse 10. He says, I, I perceive that this voyage is going to be with much loss, not only of the lading of the ship, but what's on the ship, but our lives as well. I perceive that this is not a good idea, he said. This is not a good idea to continue on. They're in Fair Havens, remember. They could winter there, but it would be, as we'll read here in just a moment, in verse 12, 
Because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to put to sea from thence, if by any means they could reach Phoenix. Notice I actually didn't intend to do this, but verse 11, we see once again the relationship here of the centurion to what's on the ship. The centurion gave heed to whom? Did he listen to Paul? No. He listened to the owner of the ship, the master of the ship, and said, no, we will continue. So we are looking at a situation where uh, Fair Havens is not quite a, the best place to be, although they could have stayed there apparently. But they choose to go at least on to Phoenix, verse 12, to winter there, which is a haven of Crete looking northward. Now I want you to look at this map once again here. Looking at Fair Havens over to Crete or to Phoenix is not a very long way, is it? It's not a very long way at all. And the decision to go on to Phoenix was a critical point in this voyage. Because as we're going to see at that point is where the winds became very contrary, pushed them out to sea where they had no control and uh, things become quite treacherous. So this is a critical point. Verse 13, the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. So they're bouncing in along the bottom, along the southern part of Crete. After no long time, they're beat down from it a tempestuous wind, which is called a Uroquillo, or some of your versions will say Northeaster or Eurocleden. This is a, uh, apparently a northeastern wind, which would drive them away, as you would see here, the direction from Phoenix. Beat down, and when the ship, verse 15, was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven, driven away, driven away from the, the island. And let's stop here and pause for just a minute and think about some of the things we've seen even already, not just in this chapter, but even in the book of Acts. The evidence is that Luke, Luke is along for the ride. The evidence that Luke presents in the book of Acts and even in this chapter, all of the geographical references here provide us with authenticity. All these cities, all these cities can be verified in, in ancient history, where they were. Some of them even exist today with such great detail. Also, his evidences are things of weather-related terms that are very specific even to this region when they have days and times of the year where it's very contrary. Luke was very specific, further authenticating his message and his narrative. Very specific weather-related terms according to the Mediterranean Sea itself. And third, he mentions nautical terms, and we'll see these even more as we go on nautical terms that were used in that day and time. So as we continue, let's, let's think about Luke's, uh, his narrative and how great and specific historian that he is. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were able with difficulty to secure the boat. And when they had hoisted it up, they used helps undergirding the ship fearing lest they should be cast upon the surges. Now, I take this to be the undergirding being they would have ways to take ropes and 
put along the belly of the ship and tighten up the ship and keep it safe and secure as they were facing contrary seas. The last part of verse 17 refers to the Sirtis. These were sandbars, and you might look at the lower, kind of the lower left-hand corner of the Sirtis Major. There, were, there was great fear and being tossed and driven down to that area because there were some sands that were there that they could run aground on the sands and far away from the shore and certainly be at a loss in that particular case. So there are situations, once again, that Luke is very familiar with and understands and provides for us here. These surtis, the sandbars, and there was fear that they could be driven upon those. Verse 18, we labored exceedingly with the storm the next day. I find it interesting in verse 18 that apparently from the way this reads, I would infer that we means everybody. When there's a dire situation and there's fear of being lost at sea, all hands on deck, prisoners, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, I would imagine that everybody is taking part and participating in helping with this situation. We labored exceedingly with the storm. The next day they began to throw the freight overboard. The third day they cast out with their own hands a tackling of the ship. These would be the things, the ropes and the pulleys and the hooks and things of that nature. And when sun or stars shone upon us for many days and no small tempest lay on us, what is the situation on the ship? All hope is lost. Does that tell you what people on the ship were thinking? All hope is lost. As they are lost in the storm, this basically is verse 15 or 14 through 26. They're lost in the storm. They undergird the ship, all hands on deck. Freight goes overboard to lighten it so it's easier to maneuver. And perhaps at times be less likely to run aground. They throw out the tackling of the ship. And verse 20 says, all hope is taken away that we should be saved. I want you to really understand at what point in this narrative we are in verse 20. Because what happens when all hope is lost? Who rises up to give hope. Did I hear God? And who is he using as an instrument for that? Paul. Verse 21, when they had been long without food, and imagine yourself going for so many days without food, for several reasons, they then Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me, you should have listened unto what I admonished you to do. And not set sail from Crete and gotten this injury and loss, but now, verse 22, I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, how does Paul know this? How does he know that? Is he just guessing? An angel told him, verse 23, 
There stood by me an angel of the God whose I am, who also I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must stand before Caesar, and lo, God hath granted thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it has been spoken to me, that we will, will, be, uh, will survive, but will be cast upon a certain island." Now, I want you to consider something that's mentioned in verse 23, or rather verse uh, 24. Paul, in relaying this message that he has from God, says, God said, fear not before you will appear before Caesar. And I would infer in verse 24 that what he says here, God hath granted thee all them that sail with thee. I would infer from that that Paul has been on his knees praying. We don't see that mentioned here. But when the angel comes and says, God has granted thee, I don't know about you, but I come to the conclusion that Paul has been doing some very fervent praying here. That they be, de- be delivered, and not only himself, but who else be delivered? That all, Paul has apparently been praying for everyone on this ship to be delivered, that they would survive. God says, I grant thee all them that sail with thee. So Paul is providing hope when there is no hope. People are lost at sea, have no hope. But God, through his ways and means, provides hope. You see some parallels here? There's several parallels to being lost in a storm that we can see. Men left to themselves have no hope, but Paul gives them hope. A lot of parallels, beautiful parallels that we probably don't have time to get into. Now we will uh, pause there for any thoughts that you have. Verse 26. Yes. See, God gives a reason for that in verse 24. He says, you must stand before Caesar. I don't want to get ahead of you, but you remember when Paul would be in prison in Rome, he would write letters. And one of those letters was to the church at Philippi. And then the final greetings at the end, he said, those of the household of Caesar greet you. So Paul, mm-hmm. God wanted Paul to be able to preach to the household of Caesar. And so that's at least mm-hmm. one reason why God saw to it that these people are going to survive this trip. Yeah, I think Philippians 1, uh, verse 12, 13 or so, talks about he was able to speak to the whole Praetorian Guard. Uh, quite a number of folks there, yes. Um, I just wanted to say, these men thought that they were going to die and they were going to be lost forever. And Paul, being the righteous man, he turned to the right source, which was God, and 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 asked him for not just him, but for everybody else to survive. Sometimes when you're at your darkest moment and you think there's no hope left, the one thing you need to do is pray and mm-hmm. ask God to help you. Yeah, very good. Do I have one more here? Yes. You kind of see here in this chapter that, you know, the Romans 
they believe they are bringing a prisoner to Rome, but, but it, we're shown here they're incapable to do that. They're not even able to bring Paul themselves. They can't, under, they can't time the trip right. They're, we have the shipwreck. They don't know what to do. It's made very clear in this chapter that the Lord is sending his emissary to Rome. He is the one controlling this, kind of proving that this is not out of his control, that his apostle has been captured, and he, he's in control of this, and he is sending Paul to Rome, and nothing will mm-hmm. stop that because mm-hmm. he wants his apostle to be in Rome now. Mm-hmm. Very good. We've, we've talked about this before, but uh, we see as we step back and look at the, everything that goes on in Acts, and a particular occasion like this, how many times we've observed that why does Paul, you know, if you're on the ship and think about it, you haven't eaten in many days and how stressful and exhausting this is. And think, why are we here? Well, it's because of Paul's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we begin to see once again in, in these chapters the struggle that is required of men to proclaim the gospel. The struggle that's required. In 2 Corinthians 11, you remember the last part of 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about I, about he, he authenticates his apostleship by saying, I've been at perils of the sea, perils of robbers, perils of uh, stoning and stripes often. And it's interesting to note, by the way, that that was written before this. So he wrote that and didn't even include this voyage and shipwreck at all in 2 Corinthians 11. But all that to say that proclaiming the gospel, we see much of what it takes to do so and the struggle that's required. Paul sets the bar very high for us, doesn't he? Verse 27, as we continued the journey, the 14th night came and we were driven to and fro in the Sea of Adria. About midnight, the sailors surmised that they were drawing near to some country. They sounded and... uh, here Paul or Luke uses terms that they would be familiar with in nautical terms. They sounded and found 20 fathoms. This would be about 120 feet, given that a fathom is six feet. Then they go a little further, it's 15 fathoms. And some thought that they would sneak away and under colors or under pretense, they would lower the boat in verse 30, find their way and escape this dire situation. Paul, perceiving it, said, except these people abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. In other words, saying, we, we all are in this together. They all have to stay on the ship, and we must all go through this together. So they cut away the ropes and let her fall off. Now, it uh, is the 14th night, 14th day. You've taken no food in verse 33, and Paul says what in verse 34, verse 35? Who do you get the shift? And actually this shift, I believe, occurred back in about verse 21. There's a shift. Who was guiding the ship? Apparently the centurion had charge of the ship, but the master of the ship drove it. 
But here in verse 21 and 22, there's a big shift in who is, we'll say, guiding the ship. Paul begins to rise, and he begins to be the, the main person guiding what we do when we do it. So we see that evidenced here in verse 34, verse 35. He says, uh, men, uh, you've been so long without food. Take food. You need food. And he gives thanks to God in the presence of all, and he break it. And you know there are some heathen people here. So he takes the time to admonish them, praising God and thanking God for this food and such a dire situation as we have here. Yes, he does. And gives thanks to God in presence of all. He break it and they began to eat. And then how did they respond after they ate? They were renewed, weren't they? They were cheerful once again. After, after this, we see them lightening the load once again in verse 38, 39. They lightened the ship, threw, all the, threw the wheat into the sea. And as you can imagine, this waves of the sea, the, the sea is driving them, driving them further and further. They even cast off the anchors in verse 40, loosening everything, lightening the ship so that they would be able to drive further into land, whatever land they uh, reach, and they uh, shipwrecked in verse 41, where two seas met, the vessel came aground, the poor ship struck, and it remained unmovable, but the stern began to break up. And then you see everyone scrambling. The soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners in verse 42, lest they might escape. Uh, shows you what they think of prisoners. Let's just kill them all, lest they escape. But the centurion, desiring to save Paul, admonished them to do what? No, don't kill the prisoners. And part of his reason is to spare Paul. So you see that relationship between Julius the centurion and Paul has now reached a great degree. It has grown during this voyage to such a degree that centurion is willing to save Paul. So you see Paul's influence upon these people uh, as they come ashore, some on planks, some on other things of the ship, everybody scrambling for anything they can to help them get to land. And you see salvation here, don't you? Picture of salvation. They are saved from the ship. They have been lost at sea. Paul gives them a way out, shows them the way of salvation, and they find salvation when they listen and when they do as they're prescribed to do. So Paul's rising to lead the voyage. His influence is noteworthy uh, throughout the voyage, uh, just as a matter of the way he handles himself with other people, with prisoners, with, with the centurion, with all people. Paul has a preserving and saving influence to those that are lost in the storm. And even the centurion as gives way to Paul. All right, we will catch up with our, uh, that's our outline. Okay, once again, let's look at the map here. As we go a little bit further, 
Further to the west, we'll see Malta. You take a, it's hard to know exactly how the ship would be, have been tossed to and fro in this sea. They're out in the middle from Crete over to Malta. Perhaps the ship is just being tossed every which way. So finally, they land at a little island called Malta there. You'll see over on the left-hand side. And then we're going to go up from there northward through Syracuse region and land at Puteoli and the rest of the way into Rome. All right, chapter 28. When we were escaped, we knew that the island was called Melita or, or Malta. There were barbarians there, native people. But what, what way did they treat Paul and those on the ship? Much kindness. Out here where the barbarians are. The uncivilized people. And, you know, it's something how many times people in the world put us to shame in the way they treat other people. It really is. These barbarians showed no common kindness, verse 2, to those on the ship. They received us because of the present rain. And one of the first things that they see, verse 3, they witness a miracle. God has put Paul out in the middle of nowhere. Does he throw his hands up and say, I can't influence anybody out here. I can't do any good for the kingdom. No. Paul is gathering sticks. A viper comes out, bites him on the hand. And these people in this remote island are able to witness the power of God. Because this doesn't normally happen that a man is bitten by this kind of viper and live to tell about it. No doubt this man is a murderer, verse 4, they said. And then they finally changed their mind and said, well, uh, maybe he's a god. And they've gone from one extreme to the other. Maybe he's a god. And then in the place uh, also, they just happened, I find it interesting in verse 7, they just happened to land near the chief person of the island, Publius. Isn't that providential that they would sail and, and shipwreck Right there where the chief man of the island is and they can influence him. Well, his father lay sick and Paul went in in verse 8 and entered in and prayed and laid his hands upon him and healed him. Then when they left Malta, now this island is, they're witnessing two people at a small island. Paul and his men are Witnessing and testifying, if you will, to the people in Malta. They, they find it necessary to do so wherever they are. Whether they're at a courthouse in Caesarea, whether they're on a riverbank, or they're in a synagogue, whether they're in Malta, whether they're in Rome, whether they're on a ship lost at sea, they find it necessary to witness about Christ. What does that tell me I should be willing to do? Verse 11, after three months, we set sail. And notice after, after they leave, the island of Malta gives them, bids them farewell in the most truest sense of the term. They bid them a farewell. Verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship of Alexandria. Here's the third ship. 
So the voyage resumes. Uh, they come to Regium in verse 13. And who is it in verse 13 and 14 that greet them as they come ashore? Their brethren. I don't know how these brethren found out so quickly, but it seems they found out very quickly. We found brethren there, and who is it in verse 15 that after seeing these brethren took courage? He was renewed. Paul himself. And don't think for a minute that Paul and that voyage and all that he's been through was not enthralled and renewed to see his brethren once again. And he was. Verse 16, we, we enter into Rome. Paul was suffered to abide by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Now, we're not, not going to see particularly any specific reference here to... Uh, him appearing before the centur or before the emperor Caesar, which is Nero at this time, we're not going to see a reference to that. But apparently, the Holy Spirit saw fit that we should see what's presented here as Paul witnesses once again to those that are Jews. Lest you think that Paul is tired, tired of talking to the Jews. Once again, he has a message for them. Verse 20, uh, let's go down to about verse, uh, well, let's go down about verse 20. He talks to these, these uh, the first group of Jews, for this cause, therefore did I entreat you to see and to speak with me, for because of the hope of Israel, I am bound for this chain. And they say, well, we haven't heard anything about this, we haven't seen anyone that's talked about what's happened to you and we're not expecting you here because of that. So they gather a larger group in verse 23, when they had appointed him a day, they came to him at his lodging in great number to whom he expounded the matter, testifying the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. And that tells me several things, but that you and I can tell about Jesus from, the from just Moses and the prophets, that we're capable of talking to somebody and bringing them to Jesus just by simply using the Moses, the law of Moses and the prophets. But notice that he testified to them concerning the kingdom once again here. He has the Jews as his audience. And once again, the message has not changed at all. The message that he wants to present is just exactly what it's been time and time again. He hasn't changed his message because it, he thought it didn't work before. His message is the same as it was before. Notice that. He hasn't lost focus. So many times uh, ministers of the gospel get lost in a maybe a, a pet subject or a hobby horse and they lose sight of the essential matters of the kingdom. Paul has not lost sight of the essential matters of the kingdom. He's testifying them the kingdom of God about Jesus and his resurrection. And he hasn't changed his message. Some believed, but apparently many did not. And he steps back once again and considers what has been said and heard, 
And Paul says, you're just like those in the days of Isaiah, verse 26. Isaiah was told that you'll go to people, they'll be hard-headed, they'll see and not see, and they'll hear and not hear. Jesus actually quoted this as well in Matthew 13 when he was describing the parables. Why are we, why do we hear you speak in parables? And Jesus said the reason is because people will hear and not hear. They will close their ears and they close their eyes and close their heart. Jesus quoted that as well. And Paul quotes that as well here, attributing it to these Jews that have heard him. And then he finishes verse 28 and saying, Be it known to you that this salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, they will also hear. He never loses focus, never changes his message for fear of losing an audience. Verse 30 and 31, He abode two whole years in his own higher dwelling and received all that went unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, none forbidding him. Unbeknownst to the Roman Empire, they have escorted, ushered, and protected the gospel. Particularly, we see it in verse, chapters 21 through 28. We step back and look at our study in chapters 21 through 28 here. Unbeknownst to the Roman Empire, they have protected Paul and the gospel and allowed it to continue carrying it on through Jerusalem and Rome, Caesarea and Rome and all these places. We see the power of God, the providential power of God being carried out in ways that we cannot even measure. Find it interesting as well in verse 30 through 30 and 31 that Paul is bound but the word of God is what? The word of God is not hindered. Some of your versions will use that word in the last part of verse 31, none forbidding him not not being hindered in any way. Paul is bound as a prisoner, but the word of God, is it bound? Is, can it be bound? No. The word of God prevails. Again, I'll refer to Philippians 1 verse 12. As we look at the circumstances that Paul is in, as he relays that to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 12, So all these things that have happened unto me have fallen out to the progress of the gospel. My circumstances, I look at them, and they're really falling out to the progress of the gospel. In fact, I think he continues in verse 13 by saying, The whole Praetorian Guard has heard the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you will look at that with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9, as he relates his ministry to Timothy, a young man, Timothy, says, this is what I want you to remember, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel. Okay, I'm sure Timothy knew about that, didn't he? 
But he's saying, Timothy, you remember it, even when, verse 9, you might suffer hardship under bonds like I did as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. The Word of God is not bound or hindered in any way. And we must remember that at times when we seem like things are not progressing, things are not moving forward, we are disappointed at the progress of the gospel. It may be times when we are very frustrated and discouraged, but the word of God prevails. We've seen that over and over in the book of Acts. And even Paul here is bound He is limited, but the Word of God is not. The Word of God is not hindered by any circumstances that man can be found in. On a ship lost at sea, out in the middle of nowhere, dark, raining, storms tossing to and fro, the Word of God prevails. I want you to uh, consider... For just a moment, some of the key words we've seen in the book of Acts. Looking through the book of Acts, we've seen some key words. We saw some of these in our key passage, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit would come, and then you would become witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, the Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice as you... In the future days when you study the book of Acts, I want you to think about these words, these, some of these key words that will help you to see things in the book of Acts and will help you to, to uh, understand what's going on, see things repeated over and over again. The word witness or some form of that or the word testify, combine that, what does a witness do? He testifies. Some form of those words is found about 29 times in the book of Acts. The words teaching or preaching found at least 23 times, just those words. And there's other forms of those that would probably add to that. The word resurrection or raised from the dead, 30 times. The word Holy Spirit or spirit, 55 times. The word Holy Spirit or Spirit, actually in the book of Acts, if you look at it, there's so many times, so many chapters, you'll see the book, the the Holy Spirit is guiding the events that happen. Such as Paul was told to go to Macedonia. Remember a change in plans? The Holy Spirit, he saw a man from Macedonia. This is a change. This is the Holy Spirit guiding the ministry. The word word or word, talking about the word of God, is 64 times, and the name of Jesus is found 68 times. Jesus has died and ascended into heaven at the first chapter. But what apparently is their mission And they're preaching, they're talking about Jesus. Now let's just, I thought it would be interesting just to make a sentence out of this. Using every one of these words, the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit. 
sending witnesses to preach the word of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the book of Acts is about. And also, in addition to that, please remember that how many times, and I'll just pop this up real quickly, how many times we've seen a situation occur, but the word of God prevails, the word of the Lord prevails. Doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter what twists and turns take, the word of the Lord prevails. And we saw that at the end of our study here in Acts 28. Paul is bound, but the word of God prevails. The word of God flourishes. It is not hindered in any way. All right, I appreciate your thoughts and your participation in the class this morning.